We are going to continue our series called Shipwrecked. Continue our series called Shipwrecked. You guys know that sometimes it's important, let me just say it this way, sometimes it's, it's, it's not just helpful to know what to do. Sometimes it's helpful to know what not to do, right? It's, it's not just helpful to know what to do all the time. And, and there's many stories in the Bible that are actually not trying to tell us what to do, but some of the stories in the Bible are examples of really what not to do, okay? And how many of you guys would just admit, sometimes it is a little bit fun to enjoy somebody else's pain. I mean, just honest, just like, I mean, in some of those stories in the Bible, you're like, well, at least I'm not that guy, and at least I'm not that bad, you know? And so what I want to do today is I want to look at really one of those stories, but we're going to do that by contrasting two stories. And one of them we looked at a couple weeks ago, and many of you guys are familiar with this story. It's a story of Jesus when he was on the boat with his disciples, and they're going out and they're crossing over. And then what happens? A storm comes and starts to beat against the ship. The ship is about to break up, but Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples go and they wake up Jesus I say, don't you even care about us? We're perishing. Jesus gets up, calms the sea, and everything's all right. Now, there's a strikingly similar story, and I want you to, as we walk through this, I want you to notice all the similarities of this story. There's a strikingly similar story in the Old Testament. And it's also a story that many of you guys are familiar with. And it's the story of a guy named Jonah. So the first story, we have Jesus in a boat. The second story, we'll see we have Jonah in a boat. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Jonah is a prophet. Some of you guys who have seen the VeggieTales thing, that just now has been in your head now forever. So Jonah's a prophet. Ooh, ooh, yeah. It says, arise, go to Nineveh, and it's cascading out there, yeah. But he, didn't, he went the other way. He went to Tarshish, and he went to go flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went down in to go with them to Tarshish, and away from the presence of the Lord. But then the Lord hurled this great wind against the sea, on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and the ship threatened to break up, and everybody's freaking out. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just ad-libbing a little bit here. The mariners were afraid. So again, let's look at the similarities of this story. Jesus in the boat with disciples. We have Jonah in the boat with some sailors, some mariners, right? The, ship com- or the, the storm comes in the boat with Jesus and the disciples, and the storm comes in the boat or to the boat with Jonah and the mariners, and each one cried out to their God. The disciples cried out to Jesus. The mariners cried out to whatever God they could think of. And they began to hurl the cargo that was in the ship into the sea and lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner parts of the boat, and he was what? Asleep. Remember the first story, Jesus was asleep. Jonah is asleep in the boat. And the the mariners, the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, you got to imagine Jonah is just in the ship. He's in the boat and he's running away from the presence of God. And he gets woke up out of a deep sleep and then all of a sudden realizes there's a storm. How do you guys know sometimes when you get woke up out of a deep sleep, Weird things, you know, like, can you imagine Jonah just waking up and and having all this activity? How many of you guys have ever woke up in the middle of the night and had just weird thoughts happen in your mind? Anybody? I had this happen the other night. Out of a deep sleep, I just woke up and I had this thought, 
just, I mean, literally, out of a deep sleep, just instant thought, when was deodorant invented? (laughs) And I was, I mean, just seriously, like, and then, you know, you're up for three hours, right? And I was, because the next thought just kept coming. And I was like, what kind of brutal world did we live in before deodorant was invented? And then I got real spiritual and I started thinking about Moses and the Israelites and he delivered the Israelites. And I'm, this, I'm out of a deep sleep. And the Israelites and he delivered them out of Egypt and, and they're out in the wilderness. But they don't have deodorant. What did that smell like? And I was up for three. So Jonah had, you guys wake, wake up out of a deep sleep and he's just kind of frantic and they begin to cast lots to try to figure out who's the problem person here in this situation. The lot falls on Jonah. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to him, pick me up, throw me into the sea. The sea will be calm. They said, no, we, we're not going to do that. Uh, they kept rowing harder and harder and harder to try to fight it. And then finally they say, okay, well, Lord, don't let us be accountable for this man's blood. But they chucked him into the sea anyway. And the sea went quiet. And, and they feared the Lord. They said vows unto the Lord. And, and then the Lord, and you know this part of the story, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. There are several similarities to this story. Jesus in the boat with the disciples. Jonah in the boat with the mariners. The storm comes to Jesus in the boat. The storm comes to Jonah in the boat. The disciples freak out and the mariners freak out. The disciples call to their God. The mariners call to their God. The disciples go and wake up Jesus. The mariners go and wake up Jonah. Jesus gets up, calms the sea. For Jonah, the only way the sea can be calmed is for him to be chucked into the sea. Why is that? You have all these similarities. The problem is Jonah was on the wrong boat. How many of you guys know somebody who's a little hard-headed? I think Jonah had some of that going on, you know? I mean, he's a prophet of God, and he's running away from God, and finally he's like tapping out, but then he's, he's in the belly of the whale, but he's been, he's been thrown into the sea. Jonah was on the wrong boat. Jonah was on the wrong boat because Jonah had a hard head. <laughs> but let me tell you, you can go from having a hard... Let me, let me just put it this way. Hard-headedness leads to hard-heartedness. So Jonah, somewhere along the way with the hard head, eventually had a hard heart where he just didn't care anymore. God told him to go and preach to people to be saved for God to have mercy. But Jonah, with his hard head that led to a hard heart, didn't even care about these people anymore. And so Jonah got on the wrong boat. And I believe what was happening, as we see, and we're going to see through this story, I believe Jonah had some sort of stronghold in his life that kept him from doing what God wanted him to do, that kept him away from God's purposes of his life. And I believe that some of us, even today, even as believers, can have strongholds in our life. What's a stronghold? Well, a stronghold is a place in our life that we've built up as a defensive posture that we won't let people into that place. Maybe we won't even let God into that place after a while. But just to give you a picture of what this looks like, just in the natural, has anybody here ever been to Israel? Anybody been to Israel? 
Some of you guys, have you seen uh, this place called Masada? Has anybody been to Masada? Masada is this big, huge, uh, like rock face type cliff, you know, raising out of the desert. And it was built as a defensive place, a stronghold, you could call it, in the natural to defend against enemies. Now, rather than just me telling you about it, I want to show it to you because it's a lot better if I do that. So let's watch. Masada was built as a getaway palace fortress by Herod the Great, the famously brutal king of Judea and a client to the Roman Empire. And he wasn't messing around. Located on a high plateau overlooking the Dead Sea, Masada is an extremely defensible position. Steep cliffs on all sides makes it almost impossible to attack. To approach, you need to hike up a winding trail called the Snake Path, which visitors can still use today. I'm in reasonably good shape, and this hike exhausted me. Now, imagine trying to march up this same path in legionnaire armor, shield, and weapons with defenders chucking stones down at you. Yeah, no thank you. A network of water cisterns was engineered to catch rain to supply the fortress with water. Dwelling spaces were built directly into the wall and could be filled with rubble to reinforce it during the siege. And never a man to skimp on the niceties of Roman lifestyle, Herod also built an insanely impressive palace on a series of terraces on the north side of the mountain. But this story is not about Herod. Masada is most famous for the event that occurred 75 years after his death, as the site of the Jewish rebellion's last stand against the Roman invaders. Now, Judea had long been under Roman rule, but in the late 60s CE, the population revolted, leading to the devastating sack of Jerusalem in the year 70, when the Romans destroyed the second Jewish temple. A rebel force under the command of Eleazar ben Yair held out at Masada for several more years until the 10th Roman legion attacked it during the winter of 72 or 73 CE. All of our data about the siege of Masada comes from two sources archaeological data, and the historian Josephus in Book 7, Chapters 8 and 9 of his account, The Jewish War. The archaeological evidence in particular is indispensable for what it tells us about Roman war tactics. Even today, you can see the remnants of the siege in what the archaeologist Gwyn Davies calls the most complete surviving siege system of the ancient world. It includes a series of encampments built around the plateau. Here's one, here's another, and another. Eight camps in all, where the Roman soldiers and field engineers lived during the siege. When I visited the site, I couldn't help but imagine what it would have been like to be a Judean defender of this fortress. Sure, you're perched up way up high in a super defensible position, but you're looking down at a bunch of Roman camps filled with legionnaires. This must have been a blow to anyone's morale as you watch a professional army go about their daily preparations to try to kill you. But the most impressive feature is probably the Roman siege ramp, still visible on the western side of the plateau. Since it was nearly impossible to march in formation up the snake path, and since the rebels were well supplied with both food and water, the Romans must have decided it would be easier to build their own artificial road to get soldiers and siege machinery up to the wall itself for a full frontal assault. And that's exactly what they did. The Roman engineers piled up earth to the wall, built an ironclad siege tower 30 meters tall, at least according to Josephus, and topped it with a battering ram. But according to Josephus, the siege came to a bitter and unexpected end. He reports that after the Romans had battered through the wall and a full-scale invasion of the fortress appeared imminent, the Jewish commander Eleazar convinced his men to commit mass suicide in order to avoid capture. But rather than kill themselves and their wives and children individually, the men drew lots to designate ten among them to kill everyone else. After this, these ten men drew lots again to choose one man to kill the other nine, leaving only one to kill himself. 
So, for what it's worth, technically only one person killed himself, according to Josephus. When the Romans finally overtook the fortress, they found everyone dead, except for a handful of women and children who had hid themselves in a cave. Now, that's, that's an encouraging story, right? I mean, that's why you came to church, right? To just be encouraged. No, that's a picture of a stronghold that is, it takes an enormous amount of effort to overcome. And that's a picture in the natural. A, a stronghold is literally a place that has been fortified to protect from attack. A place of security and survival. Masada was that place in the natural But don't you know that there are places like that inside of us? Places that we have created that no one can penetrate, places that we have fortified, places that we protected from attack, different areas of our life that we have as strongholds. And just like Jonah, they may start off small, but eventually they lead us to the wrong boat in the wrong direction and sometimes away from the presence of God. Now, This is what a stronghold looks like in our life, very similar to Masada. It's a place of security. We've built it to last. We've made provisions. They had elaborate places for provisions up there. It was the ultimate prepper's paradise, okay? They could stay up there for months and months and even years. And some of us have made provisions for us to hold out in our strongholds for as long as it takes. They had elaborate rooms. Sometimes you can build elaborate spaces for strongholds in your life. Anyone who would challenge the stronghold of Masada had very little chance. Now, the Romans were uh, unusually successful in that, but most of the time, there is no way anyone could penetrate that stronghold. And listen, I, I know that sometimes in our life, we can have strongholds in our life where no one has a chance to speak into our life anymore. We've guarded our life against voices. There's not a podcast. There's not a book. There's not a person. There's not a close friend. There's not a preacher. There's not a pastor. There's a, there's even scripture sometimes can't penetrate our stronghold. That's starting off with a hard head that eventually leads to a hard heart. And just like Masada, eventually they decided when they were getting overcome, they were just going to die on that hill. And some of us are willing to go to our grave defending the strongholds that's in our life rather than going to a place of healthy surrender to God. A stronghold could be many things. It can be addiction. It could be sin. It could be demonic oppression. It can be something that we just simply refuse to surrender to God. Anything that we refuse to surrender to God has the potential to become a stronghold in our life. And we fortify these areas in our heart. We continue to build these areas in our heart. We run to these areas in times of need. These are areas that we run to for comfort. These are areas that we run to for our security. These are areas that eventually become a savior, a sort of savior to us. And they, they are strongholds in our life. And it's hard for God to even overtake these. You might have a stronghold in your life if you find that you have a pattern of unforgiveness. If you're, there's this constant cycle of unforgiveness in your life, there may be a stronghold in your life. If you have a pattern of unresolved issues that continue to cycle around, they're just constantly there. You might have a stronghold in your life if there's uncontrolled thoughts. If you, you continue to allow thoughts to happen in your life that you know you shouldn't, what are you doing? You're refortifying that stronghold with things maybe you even know aren't 
right. If you keep coming up against the same issue over and over again in your relationship, in your, uh, in, in your finances, in your walk with God, and you keep seeing the same scenery over and over and over again in your relationship, whatever area, you may have a stronghold in your life. Jonah had these because we see the repeated pattern in the story. Just in four chapters that we get, we see the repeated pattern of Jonah. We see that, that even after he had turned around and he got spit out of the fish and he says, okay, God, I'm gonna go do it. And he goes and he preaches through Nineveh. And then something happens that he knew was going to happen. And the whole reason he didn't want to go, they repented. They, they said, we need to repent. They put sackcloth and ashes and they repented and they turned around and God spared them. And God's grace and mercy came. And you thought, you would think a prophet of God would rejoice about that. But Jonah had some sort of stronghold in his life that wouldn't allow him to rejoice with others who were experiencing the grace of God. And so at the end, even though he'd gone through all of this, he was upset. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. God's grace had come to people, and Jonah is angry about it. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, God, this is what I knew was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were a God of grace, and I knew you'd forgive people. That's why I didn't want to go. And that's why I didn't want to go. And the Lord said, uh, and then he says, he goes on, he says, please take my life for me. Again, he's willing to die on this hill. Please take my life for me. I'd rather die than surrender and have grace for other people. And, and God said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out on the city and he sat on the east, went out of the city, sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in its shade until he would see what would become of the city. He's sitting down and he's just hoping that somehow God changes his mind and lights some fireworks on this city. How'd you like to, that guy to be your pastor, right? I mean, just like, <laughs> and so he must have, I can only come to the conclusion that Jonah must have had a history where there was something that happened in his life where maybe there was unforgiveness or something unfair that had happened or some hard-headed moment that turned into hard-heartedness because it continues to show up. And this is what happens when there's a stronghold in our life. And listen, I could just have everybody raise their hand right now without even asking this question because I know it's true, but many of us have had experiences with other people and other relationships and where we have been hurt. Anybody ever been hurt in a relationship before? And we go on into to our life and we've been hurt this time and we've been hurt that time, we've been hurt this time, and we get older and wiser. And a lot of us use older and wiser as an excuse to love less. Can I just tell you that is not what Scripture teaches us. The Bible doesn't teach us that if you get older and you get wiser that you will love less. See, as we get older and wiser, it ought to help us love better, love more. That doesn't mean there's without wisdom. No, of course there's wisdom. That do, in other words, I don't have to be naive about people to love them well. I can understand where they're coming from and what they're going to do and still love people. But Jonah, he had got to a place where he had a hard heart. And when you have a hard heart, it's hard to love people. And, and so he got, it, it, the scripture teaches us we ought to be able to love better. So where do strongholds come from? I believe they can come from many places, but 
What the, the place I want to talk about today is a, a thing I think I've only talked about one other time, maybe two other times. But I believe it's so important. And I believe strongholds come many times from what I heard somebody once preach it. Jimmy Evans preached it. He's a pastor and a marriage guy. But he talked about inner vows. And inner vows are simply promises we make to ourselves. They're a vow that we make to ourselves. God never, never authorized it, but we make a promise to ourselves that I won't be hurt in that way again or I won't do that again. And in, instead of me just telling you about that, I want you to hear it how I heard it first from Pastor Jimmy Evans. Watch. An inner vow is a self directed promise resulting from an unpleasant experience or hurt from a life situation by a parent or someone else. Uh, it's just we comfort ourselves with inner vows. And examples of inner vows is I'll never treat my children like that. I'll never spank my children. I'll never make my kids wear hand-me-downs. I'll never be poor again. I'll never make my kids work like this. No one is ever going to hurt me again. I'll never let my husband and wife treat me like that. On and on. It, but we don't mean these things to be bad. We, we're just trying to comfort ourselves. When you're going through a difficult circumstance, it's comforting to say, I'm not coming back here. I'm not coming back here. This is not going to happen to me again. But the problem with inner vows is, number one, they're unscriptural. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is God's footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more than this is from the evil one. And you, evil. Jesus said, when you go around swearing to yourself or anything else, he said, it's evil. And you say, well, why, why is an inner vow evil? Because when you make an inner vow, you become Lord of that area of your life, and Jesus isn't. Inner vows completely reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you an example. So you go through a difficulty in life, and my dad was, lived in abject poverty growing up. It, the poor, probably the poorest person I've ever heard of slept outside every night in the wintertime slept with the horses is you, you're, you're poor and you make yourself this promise it's a, it's a comforting promise and you say I'll never be poor again guess who isn't Lord of your finances no one is ever going to hurt me again guess who isn't Lord of your relationships every single area of your life where you make it Jesus said it's evil you perform your oaths to the Lord. You don't swear by your head. You don't swear by anything. You perform your oaths to the Lord. You don't have the right to become your own God in your own life. But that's exactly what inner vows do. It, again, everyone has them. I certainly had them. And also, the other thing about inner vows, they cause us to overreact and be unteachable. In, let me say this. Any, any area of your life where you have an inner vow working, you're unteachable, unapproachable, and a little crazy. I mean, you're just a little, little off. Let me give you some examples of this. Inner vows are like, they're the opposite of an iniquity. You see your parents doing something, you'll say, I'll never do that. But where you have an, an inner vow operating, you're like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. You're crazy. And one generation is in this ditch, and you make an inner vow, so you, trying to, like a drunk man trying to get on a horse, you fall into this ditch. You're pointing under the horse at your parents saying, well, at least I'm not in the ditch you're in but no one's on the horse. No generation is free. No generation makes any progress. 
because it's iniquity in her vow, iniquity in her vow, reaction, 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 reaction. Until someone stands up and breaks those things off of our lives. Now, most of the time, we don't even realize that we've made an inner vow because it's not like we make an announcement to everybody. Well, I'm just going to make this promise to myself that I'm not going to let anybody in anymore or whatever it is. But I can tell you this, they are guiding our life. They're guiding our decisions. It's like a program, a software program that's running how things work in our life. That's what an inner promise does. And, and it's, like an un, it's like an unauthorized New Year's resolution. God's like, I never authorized that one. So if you, have, if you grew up and you just saw your parents in constant conflict, constant conflict, and you, you say, well, I'm not going to, when I get married, I am not going to fight like that. And so I've known people who continually just avoid any type of conflict. And they, they, they will never address conflict in their marriage. And so what they, what it, just like Pastor Jimmy Evans said, they went to the other side. And how many of you guys know that just because you don't fight doesn't mean you have a healthy relationship. It means you don't know how to deal with conflict. And it's because of an inner promise that we made. I'm never going to do that. So the inner vows always come in this form. I will never or I will always. And they begin to affect our life. And then God no longer has uh, control of our life in that area. Let me just give you some uh, examples of some of inner vows. Some of these are lighthearted that I made uh, along the way. When I was in my 20s, um, I hated running. How many of you guys hate running? Anybody hate running? Anybody here who loves running? All right, the people who just raised their hand don't like you, just so you know that. But I was in my 20s, and I didn't, I didn't like running at all. But a friend of mine who was in his 30s came to me, and he said, I'm going to run a half marathon. You want to run it with me? And I'm like, I'm looking at him, and he was kind of out of shape, and he was in his 30s, so he was really old. And I'm like, he's in his 30s. And I was just like, if he's in his 30s, and he's really old, and he's going to run this half marathon, then surely I can do it. So I said, okay, then I will do it. And so I started to train. I didn't like to run. I didn't, didn't, never done that before. And so for three months, I trained, and I trained. And you had to do, I mean, these long runs, and I just kept going and kept going. And finally, it came to race day. It was a November day. It was cold. It was sleeting. It was raining. And I had been sick. I had a, a deep cough and congestion. I was just deeply sick, but I was going to run it anyway right? I put all this time in. So I go out there and I start running and it's really discouraging. I think there was this, this really old guy. I mean, he was like really, really old. He was carrying a flag the whole time. I think he was running a marathon. I think he lapped me. Um, that was discouraging. But I finished the race and I said, I will never run a half marathon again. And for 10, 15 years, that's the, every time. I will never. I will never. Then Jason Calder comes up to me over here, and he, he says, hey, we're going to run a half marathon. Do you want to do it with me? I'm like, no, I'm never running a half marathon again. But then my competitive side, competitive side kind of kicked in. I'm like, well, Jason, if Jason could do it, he's old. And I, <laughs> no, I'm actually older than Jason is, but but I was like, what well, Jason could do it, then I could do it, you know? And so, but I, then I ran a half marathon, I've ran a couple since then. But what happened? It took me 10 to 15 years for that inner promise, even a small little practical thing that really, but it kept me for 10 to 15 years because of a promise I made to myself. It was, it was an inner vow. And we make them even in practical areas of our life. 
In 2016, God directed several of us to fast for 21 days. And several of us were directed to fast a full food fast. That means no food for 21 days. No food for 21 days. And that was the fast that God called so many of us on. I remember people asking us after we got done with that. So many people came up to Becca and me and they came up to me and they said, can you survive not eating food for 21 days after we had done the fast? Yes, you can survive. And, uh, but I got done with that. And let me tell you, I said, I said, I will never do a 21-day full food fast again. Get going through that year of 2016, and God starts knocking on my heart. Uh, Sean, I didn't authorize that statement. So then in 2017, we come around, and what? That inner vow had to be broken, and God said, no, we're doing that one again. Again, a little inner vow that can also begin to guide and direct our lives. Let me tell you, when you're in a full food fast, Satan appeared to me many times during that time. Most of the time is in the form of a Big Mac Whopper, a pizza. I had to just rebuke him, get him out of there, you know. But I, I made an inner vow. I was in a season of ministry years and years ago. And I got, I got honestly, I got hurt. And I made an inner vow. I said, I will never let someone hurt me like that again. And here's how it happens. It's not just saying I will never let someone hurt me like that again because I can't control necessarily what someone else does. But what I did was I said, I will never let someone get that close to me again because I can't affect that and I can't affect how close they get to me. And I said, I will never let someone get that close to me again. Can I just tell you if you're in ministry, let me just say it this way. If you want to serve Jesus you can never make a promise to yourself like that. Because we are not called to hold people at arm's length. We're going to get hurt. We're going to have offenses come. We're going to have all of that stuff happen. If you are following Jesus, you cannot ever make a promise like that to yourself, that I won't let people get close to me again. Because that's going to happen. I'm not talking about abusive situations. or I'm talking about just life. We have to, we cannot allow inner vows to direct our life. And if I wasn't careful, I was on the brink of allowing an inner vow to direct my heart. And God says, no, Sean, I want you to have thick skin and a soft heart. You have to hold both of those in tension if you want to follow me. Yeah, and an inner vow almost derailed that. Some of you guys, maybe you grew up in church and you grew up in a church that maybe spiritual gifts were kind of crazy. You saw some crazy stuff in church and you made a vow. He's like, I'm not going to ever be a part of a church like that, you know. And then maybe God comes knocking on your heart and says, well, what if I've got something more for you? But because you've got this inner vow, you've shut everything down on the inside and shut every expression down of the Holy Spirit. Because you saw something that was a little out of control when you grew up. And God is knocking on the door of your heart saying, I want more for you. There's so much that I can do through you if you would simply open up your hand and open up your life to what I want to do. Let me give you another example of an inner vow. When I was a youth pastor, I was a youth pastor for five years in youth ministry for 10. And I was just, 
I loved being a youth pastor. You gotta understand the youth pastor probably has never left me, honestly. But I love being a youth pastor partially because you could just pick whatever you wanted to do in life that was fun and call it a youth event. And that was like your job, you know? And it was much more than that. But I love teenagers and, and just what God does in and through them. And I said this multiple times. I said this over and over again out loud to many people. I will never be a senior pastor. I will never, people come, I will never. I don't want to deal with adults. They don't know how to have fun. They don't know, any, they got weird problems, you know. <laughs> I will never. Becca said multiple times, I will never be a senior pastor's wife. Why? Because we had had experiences with pastors in that role that we just said, we're never going to do that. We're never going to do that. Of course, <laughs> what? God had to break that inner vow off. I was leaving a position, leaving a church where it was very, very difficult, very, very painful. There was things going on that basically we just said, we can't be a part of this. We have to leave. We, we cannot with integrity stay. And it was one of the most painful decisions of my life and one of the hardest decisions that I made because I was leaving, I was leaving a lot of friends. I was leaving my job. I was leaving ministry. I was leaving everything. And I felt trapped in that situation. I felt trapped. I can tell you, I felt trapped. And I just, I hated that feeling of feeling trapped. And so what did I do? I got out of that situation and I said, I will never allow myself to be in a situation where I feel trapped again. I will never allow myself to be put in a situation where I can't unplug where I want, when I want to unplug. I will never allow myself to be put in a situation where I have to plant roots that deep, where it's so hard to get out of. And I made an inner promise. And the problem was, Two years later, Jesus comes knocking on the door of my heart. And he starts to plant this dream in my heart of starting a church, which I said, God, I already said I'm never going to be a senior pastor. And God, I already said that I'm never going to be in a situation where I have to plant roots that deep. And I knew to plant a church, it's a commitment. Like, you can't just unplug from that. And so what happened? I had to allow God to chip away and to break this inner vow. This church would not be here had that one inner vow not been broken in one person's life. So I want you to think about the inner vows that you may be making right now or that you may have in your life. They may be holding back, they may be holding back the purposes of God. And in fact, an inner vow, let me just, I could just put it this way, an inner vow keeps you from God's best. And so many of us have inner vows in our life. And I had that, that inner vow in my life that wasn't submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And finally, I had to say, yes, Lord, and surrender that inner vow to him and say, God, I should never have made that. I am yours. I'll go where you want. I'll go when you want. I'll jump when you say jump. But somewhere along the way, I had created borders and boundaries to how I was going to serve God and how I wasn't going to serve God because of an inner vow. I knew a lady one time who grew up poor and uh, not having very much, and she made this decision that she was going to grow up and that she was going to marry someone rich so that she never would have to worry about being poor again. And she had made this little inner promise. She probably didn't realize she had, but she certainly had. And so that's exactly what she did. She went out and she found a rich person. She married him. And what she would go out and do is she would go and she would just spend money all the time. What was she doing? She was fortifying that inner vow. I will never be poor again. 
The marriage was a wreck. They eventually got divorced. A divorce to this day, it all fell apart. All because, I believe, because of a wrong, a misplaced intervow. A misplaced intervow. So if you find yourself in a cycle uh, in a relationship, or maybe the way you approach relationships, and you continue to find yourself at this same spot, chances are there's an intervow at work in your life. You may not even be aware of it. You may not have been able to pinpoint it yet. But let me tell you what happens. Inner vows turn into strongholds in our life. They may start off as a little promise that seems like it's going to to protect us and put us in a good spot. But inner vows turn into strongholds. And over time, unchecked, they get bigger, they get stronger, they get more fortified, they get more resources. And pretty soon, it's pretty hard to, uh, to get loose of that inner vow, that fortress that we've made. You know, at Masada, Herod made and he designed Masada so that if need be, if there was ever a problem, they could move the whole government up to the top of Masada so that the government could still function from the top of Masada. How many times do we do this in our life where we have a stronghold in our life and we've moved the government of our life so that we can govern our lives from the top of our stronghold? And then God comes to our stronghold, and, and we, no, we're, we have the government of our life right up here. So here's what we need to do. Uh, I, I believe this may sound simplistic, but it's so, so powerful. We need to turn our strongholds into altars. An altar is a place of faith, sacrifice, and surrender. And we've built up this big stronghold, but you know what you can do with that stronghold? Is you can turn it into a place of faith. You can turn it into a place of surrender. You can turn it where you can lay something on that altar. I'm, I'm reminded of Abraham when he was an old man. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about really old. He wasn't in his 30s. He was really old. And uh, he was so old that he couldn't have kids, and he was, he was childless. And God comes to him, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And Abraham is like looking back at God. He's like, God, I don't even have one kid. How can I be a father of many nations? I'm too old. My wife is too old. Just, just in the natural, we cannot have kids. How is this going to happen? And God said, I promise you this is going to happen, that, I, that through you the nations will be blessed. And I may be taking a little bit of liberty here with the story. I don't really think I am, though, because of how it turned out. I think somewhere along the way, Abraham and Sarah decided that this promise was not through them for the nations, but this promise was for them so that they could have a child. The promise wasn't just about them having a child. The promise was about the nations being blessed. But somewhere along the way, Abraham and Sarah turned this promise inward and said, this is about us. This is about what we want. And they decided somewhere along the way that one way or the other, we are going to have this child. And so along, years pass and they still don't have a child. But now they've got this inner promise to themselves, we will have this child. And so then Sarah goes to Abraham and says, well, this is our promise. This is for, we will have this child. Here's my maidservant. Maybe we can have the child through her. And it produced an Ishmael. And God's like, that wasn't the promise. That wasn't the promise. And somewhere along the way, I think it was, Ishmael was basically Abraham and Sarah saying, we'll be God of that area of our life. Thank you. We will find it one way or the other. And it became a stronghold in the life. And eventually Isaac came. Isaac was the promise. It was a miracle. 
But I believe even after the miracle happened, there was still remnants of the inner vow and the stronghold left in their life where they, they made it about themselves. How do I know that? Because I know that because of what God asked Abraham to do. I can't explain it theologically. I can't explain why God would ask him to do this. But God, we can see it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Basically, God asked him to lay Isaac on the altar and to kill him. I believe that the only reason that would happen is I think Abraham made an inner vow somewhere that he said that he would never lose his promised son. And God says, you know what? I want you to lay everything on the altar. And God stopped him in the process because he's like, okay, now... Now we can, we can see this blessing because this isn't about you. This is through you. Do you know there's some things in your life that's not about you, it's through you? And, and finally, when he laid it down the altar, he turned his stronghold into an altar. And that's what we're gonna do today just with the little time we have left. I'm gonna have the worship team come back up at this time. And I'm gonna tell you real quick, three things on how we can turn our strongholds into altars. I don't need to take very long with them because it doesn't, it doesn't require that. The first thing is this. You might write them down, though. The first thing is this. We have to identify the vow. We have to identify the promise that we've made. Some of you, how many of you guys will just be honest, and you can already recognize, I shared several of mine. How many of you guys can recognize some inner promises you've made? Anybody want to join? Okay, a couple people. Some of you may not know what the promise is that you've made. And I'm not saying everybody has, but everybody has, okay? You just don't know it. But you know what we can do is we can invite the Holy Spirit in that process to reveal those things. Because listen, whatever you don't identify stays in the dark. Whatever, and here's the thing. So many of us busy our lives with so much noise. And we busy our lives with so much noise so we won't have to face the silence before God so that God can deal with the real issues of our heart. Some of us keep the noise going so long and so loud because we're afraid if we stop long enough, what's in the dark will have to come into the light. What I'm suggesting you might do, if you're seeing fruit in your life that you don't like seeing, it might be an interval. If you're seeing fruit in your life, a cycle that you don't like, maybe it's time to stop the noise and to ask the Holy Spirit, to identify what promise you may have made, what stronghold you're fortifying. And then once you discover that, it's very, very simple. We simply renounce the vow. It wasn't authorized. How do you renounce the vow? Well, the opposite of renounce is to agree or accept. So what we're going to do is simply disown the vow. We're simply going to forsake it and say, this is not mine. This was not authorized. I'm disowning this vow. I'm disowning this promise. This is not mine. I'm not agreeing with it anymore. And then what we're going to do is, number three, we're just simply going to invite Jesus back in to be Lord over that area of our life, and hopefully over all of our life, but specifically that area. And we're going to put that back under the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin. He took our place. He rose from the dead to have us be free from sin, not bound to sin. 
And even as believers, sometimes we can fall back. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about hardening our heart and falling back. But we can identify that. We can renounce it. We can invite Jesus to be Lord of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, which is what an inner vow is. It's raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. But here's what I know. God rarely shows up without an invitation. And even when God does show up, we still have to open the door and let him in. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says this very clearly. It says Jesus stands at the door and he's knocking. But we still have to open the door. And right now some of you guys can hear Jesus knocking at the door. Just because Jesus is knocking at the door, it doesn't mean he's been invited in. And what we're simply going to do, I hope, is to take a moment to invite Jesus in. Because I believe that many of us here are one decision away from a totally changed life. You may be one invitation, one turn of the doorknob to a totally changed life. One surrender on the altar to a totally changed life. So would you stand up with me? Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. Can we take just a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, and if you know what those things are in your life that you need to deal with, you can just go ahead and begin to do that. And others of you are gonna just invite the Holy Spirit right now to reveal those things. It could be anything. It could be pride in your heart. It could be selfishness. It could be an open wound that you haven't dealt with, an unresolved issue, unforgiveness. It could be something that happened a long time ago or something that happened yesterday. But right now, we identify those things. God, we bring them out of the dark and we bring them into the light. And we renounce those things right now. We say, these are not mine. I do not own them anymore. This is not my promise. This is, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with this. I push it away right now. And Jesus, I invite you. I hear you knocking, but I invite you to come in. Instead of the government of my life being upon my stronghold, I put the government of my life upon your shoulders. And I surrender to you. And I turn my stronghold into an altar today. Many of us just... We need to lay down that promise, even those good things that we, that God meant it to be through us. All of a sudden we stopped it to us and we said, no, this is mine now. Lord, we lay those things on the altar and we say they're all yours. And we thank you, Lord, for freedom. That we can walk in freedom because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.